This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. It's the early morning of the 21st of May, 1982. Huddled in craft, British Marines and paratroopers are about to hit the beach. It's the first step to retaking the Falkland Islands, a scrap of British territory on the far side of the world that had been all but forgotten before being seized by Argentina seven weeks before. The first British units land without a shot being fired. Hopes rise that they're going to achieve complete surprise over the Argentinians, but the relief doesn't last long. At 9.25, just after dawn, nine Argentinian Air Force dagger jets scream over the rough bowl of hills surrounding San Carlos water, which is crammed with British ships. For the rest of the day, showing great skill and bravery, the Argentine pilots launch wave after wave of attacks. It seems impossible that their bombs won't hit the cruise liner turned troop ship Canberra, which, at more than 40,000 tons, towers over the rest of the ships like a great white whale. But miraculously, it survives. Others are not so lucky. As the Antarctic night descends, the harbour is choked with smoke from burning British ships. Six warships have been hit, and one, the frigate HMS Ardent, sent to the bottom. But all the troops are ashore, the rapier missile air defence batteries are being set up, and the British Expeditionary Force is ready to start the most daunting challenge the military has faced since the Second World War. Exciting stuff. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Battleground Podcast with me, Saul David. And me, Patrick Bishop. Every week, we're going to be discussing the wars of the 20th century, goodness knows there have been enough of them, and occasionally roaming further afield if we feel the urge. But given that the 2nd of April 2022 marked the 40th anniversary of the Argentinian invasion of the Falkland Islands, we thought we'd kick off with a multi-part series on that war, following events in real time and trying to mark up all the big themes of the event. Good stuff. But before we get to that, we just want to say a few things about us and the scope of the podcast. I wrote my first military history at the age of 25 and now have 16 under my belt. I've also done a PhD and for 12 years was Professor of Military History at the University of Buckingham. I've spent a lot of my life as a foreign correspondent uh, for newspapers, a lot of them in war zones. And I think that sparked my, uh, my interest in military history. So I started writing military history books uh, back in 2003, and I've written 19 to date. Quite handy, I think, Patrick. I'm the theorist. You've got a bit of practical experience. We're pretty much covering all the bases there. Uh, but what about the podcast? It won't just be about war. Uh, it will, have, of course, have lots of bombs and bullets, but we're also interested in other aspects, social, political and cultural. Yeah, so alongside the personalities and the battles and the controversies, the technology, and there will be plenty of that, we promise you, expect to hear some thought-provoking stuff as well that puts conflict into its wider context. 
And in each episode, uh, we'll also be chatting to someone who either has first-hand knowledge of the subject or is an expert in it. And we've got a truly stellar lineup waiting. Can't wait. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Falklands War. We, we've had a preamble, of course, at the beginning of this episode. Um, very dramatic stuff when the troops finally reached the islands. But really, we need to work out why they got there, how they got there, uh, and the road to war. And we're going to come on to that later on in the episode. Um, but in very general terms, it was an extraordinary conflict. Having long claimed a right to Las Malvinas, as the Argentinians called the islands, their military rulers must have assumed that the British lion was sleeping its eye off the ball with regard to its most distant possession. There were all kinds of problems besetting Margaret Thatcher's government in fighting economic crisis. Uh, in a military sense, one of our only two aircraft carriers was about to be sold off. Only a handful of marines were guarding the Falklands and the only naval ship in the area, Endurance, was about to be recalled. So that's what's happening on the British side. Patrick, what, what's happening in Argentina at this stage? The Argentinian side was pretty confused as well. Uh, all was not going well at home for them. They've been fighting this long, pretty hideous uh, internal conflict with the military government turning on its own people, essentially, and going after anyone who they considered to be a communist or even a leftist. And uh, this dirty war, as it was called, claimed the lives by this stage of tens of thousands of people. Uh, they were looking for a distraction, and the long-standing issue of the islands seemed to provide them with an opportunity uh, to get people's minds onto something else. Whatever differences the Argentinians might have had, they all were united in believing genuinely that the islands belonged to them. So um, it must have seemed like a terrific opportunity to this embattled hunter. Uh, here, are the, here is this uh, issue that's going to unite everyone, and Britain is really uh, not in a position to oppose us should we uh, go for the, for the uh, dramatic option and launch an invasion. How on earth are they going to come all the way 8,000 miles across the oceans and try and get it back? It seemed like a, a win-win for them. Now, Patrick, you and I have written about war. I've gone all the way back to the 17th century. You've written mostly about the 20th century. But it helps a little in this particular conflict, I think, that we can both remember it. I was a 16-year-old schoolboy just about to do my O-levels, but rather unusually gripped by the events in a way that I don't think all my, my, my mates at school were. Uh, as they were unfolding 8,000 miles away in the South Atlantic, I was watching the TV news as casualties in ships and people began to mount and feeling an odd sense of detachment as if it wasn't real. But you, of course, Patrick, for you, it was far too real. Uh, what were you up to then? Well, in those days, I was a youngish reporter working for the Observer newspaper. And uh, like everyone else, I was, I was taken by surprise by events. I was, my beat was Northern Ireland in those days. So I knew a little bit about the military. But all of a sudden, this, uh, this crisis blows up. And it's, if you're a journalist, a young, ambitious journalist, it's a, it's a huge opportunity. So I grabbed it and uh, managed to uh, persuade the paper to nominate me as their correspondent with the task force. I think at that point, no one really thought that uh, it would end up in a, in a real shooting war. Uh, if they had, they might not have sent me and sent someone more, more uh, senior. 
One of the striking things for me and everyone in the country, for that matter, was how suddenly it blew up. It, it seemed to come out of nowhere. Uh, we were literally looking on maps, on atlases. You know, where where actually is uh, the where are the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic? Uh, and when you do identify them on the map, it's quite shocking how close they are to Argentina. We're talking just about maybe three or four hundred miles, but but eight thousand from here. Um, the response was cobbled together it seemed to me in a very short space of time it was very ad hoc uh, and very british really i mean could we get enough force together to do something about this that's right one of the um, senior officers involved uh, in it told me once that it was a lash up the whole thing was a lash up a naval expression which means you just grab whatever is at hand and try and uh, forge it into some sort of workable uh, instrument and that's exactly what happened they were just reaching where they could for for what resources uh, were available. Uh, it was a very British lash-up at that, um, and in the end it did work. But it certainly didn't look very likely that it was going to succeed at the beginning, uh, largely because of, of this national mood, which was very intense. I think any anyone listening now would be surprised at just how deep the malaise was in Britain at that time. You got very high unemployment. For me, the kind of theme tunes of the time were uh, Oliver's Army, the... Um, the great Elvis Costello number, and the specials Ghost Town. So you, there's this kind of feeling of terminal decline. You've got this new female prime minister who, in those days, she wasn't the Mrs. Thatcher we came to know. She was, uh, well, she was unpopular. That that bit remained true. But uh, she was very much an untried quantity. And she herself, um, you know, was the first to admit uh, at the time that she didn't really know much about the business of, of governing. Uh, so there's this sense of, of drift and of hopelessness. And um, although the armed forces nowadays uh, have a very high place in the national estimation, in those days they didn't. And in, indeed, the Falklands War was something that actually restored uh, their, their credibility and their honour in some ways. They were see they were either invisible, like the Royal Navy. You never heard anything of the Royal Navy at all. Or... Um, when they did pop up in the news, it was usually in a slightly negative way. They were in Northern Ireland trying to keep the peace and invariably from time to time there'd be some sort of uh, shooting incident or something and uh, this would create a sort of media flurry about uh, the army's tactics and behaviour. So all in all, uh, Britain didn't seem uh, to be in a very good place. Is that how you saw it, Saul? I mean, you're a young guy, but you studied the period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think of it from a military history perspective, it's downhill all the way since the end of the Second World War. Our armed forces are gradually diminishing in effectiveness, size. Uh, The Navy is getting smaller and it's about to get a lot smaller too. And there was very much a feeling, I think, even growing up that, you know, we were no longer a great power. We were heading uh, very much for second class status. We were, of course, still members of NATO, but we felt we we needed to latch on to other powers like the US, like other powers in NATO to be relevant in the world. Um, But it was remarkable uh, for all that, how much the political class got behind this. I think I was really struck, actually. You know, you had people like Foote who were against, you know, they they were campaigners for uh, nuclear disarmament. So we're talking about Michael Foote, the the Labour, famous duffelcoat wearing uh, Labour opposition leader, who indeed had been an anti-appeaser in the 1930s. He's very much a against uh, Hitler and the Nazis. But since then, has 
is also a great decolonizer and a great CND, you know, against nuclear weapons, marching from Aldermaston and all the rest of that. Exactly right. Michael Foote, as you, as you say, the leader of the opposition, leader of the Labour Party. I mean, I remember my mum going to marches in the, in the 70s and early 80s, which Michael Foote would be there. And you would naturally have expected him uh, to have opposed this sort of post-colonial venture. But the reality is the provocation was quite obvious. There was a matter of principle going on there. And even the Labour opposition were firmly behind uh, the the determination to do something about this. Did they want it to be a shooting war? Well, not necessarily, but they certainly felt we needed to make a stand over this aggressive invasion. Do you see it as you know part of a broader issue, a kind of um, a matter of principle yourself, Patrick? Yeah, well, this is, you know, uh, we don't want to labour comparisons, but... Uh, you know, this is something that never goes away in history. This is, this, this is something that's always with us. A big uh, country trying to impose its will on a neighbouring territory uh, against, the ter- against the wishes of the inhabitants. So, of course, we're seeing it in the most terrible fashion in Ukraine today. The principle remains the same. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, I mean, uh, I don't think many people will naturally make that connection between Ukraine and the Falklands. But in a loose sense, I think there is a very real uh, link between a an authoritarian regime, partly for reasons of domestic consumption, deciding that it's going to bully its weaker neighbour. Um, the difference, of course, with the Falklands is that although the Falkland Islands was small and weak and neighbouring uh, Argentina, it actually had a, a really, even though it was declining, still a significant military power that could possibly do something about this. That's true, but you know these things always come down to will ultimately, and. Although we had the appearance of a, of a significant military power, did we have the will to actually project force? It was a tr- going to be a tricky operation, whatever happened. Um, and so, you know, here we, we can talk the talk in the House of Commons. It all sounds great, rather as a, a now people are very good on the rhetoric of supporting uh, Ukraine, but not necessarily so good on the follow through. So everyone was standing back to see what we were actually going to do. Our reputation in the world was pretty low. And even with our supposedly our strongest ally, uh, the United States, they didn't hold us in particularly high esteem either. And as it turned out, their role in the whole drama that was about to follow um, was a bit ambiguous. We'll come on to that uh, later on, but that's an important element in the story. Um, So... um, what we've got to ask ourselves is really how how we got to where we are, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, you you one of the key things uh, with any wars we know, Patrick, from from our writing is you can have a military capability, but you've also got to have the political will, which we did have in the UK. But you've also got to have this broad coalition of support, um, it, partly because it matters. On the one hand, you need support going down there, possibly logistical support from, from an ally like the United States. And, and the big question mark at the beginning of this war is whether we were going to get that sort of support. So the decision to uh, possibly use military force was a bold one in that sense, because there was an element of uncertainty as to how the United States, which after all had been courting Argentina in its anti-communist kind of moves in South America, um, and therefore was it going to consider our alliance more important than its than its need to to curry favor with the argentinians and indeed how how was the whole world going to look at us because we're still remembered as being this this uh, once mighty empire now down on its luck there's a general anti-colonial mood move abroad 
Argentina um, could quite uh, successfully play the card of, well, you know, this is colonial possession, uh, really has nothing to do with Britain at all, it's right next door to us, so therefore, uh, de facto, it's surely ours. And I think that's something that they would uh, very much uh, put as a central plank in their argument in the diplomacy that followed. The other thing we shouldn't forget, of course, in all of this, Patrick, is the uh, determination of the Falkland Islanders not to be Argentinian. We're going to discuss this after the break when we look at the long road to, to war and some of the key decisions that were taken and how it all came about. But there is a, another parallel there. The Argentinians uh, were determined to make the islanders by force Argentinians, and they didn't want that to happen. And, and frankly, the same thing's happening in Ukraine at the moment. Right. Well, we'll we can uh, go into this in, in more detail. And we are extremely fortunate in having a man uh, with us after the break who uh, actually was at the heart of all the great decision making. That is Lord Luce, who is then Richard Luce. We'll be asking him... Were blunders made? Were warning signs missed? And who was responsible? We're about to find out. Join us after the break. So, welcome back. Now, the first thing uh, that happened when the crisis blew up was people reached for their atlases to find out where the Falklands actually were. And most of them turn to the pages on Scotland, assuming that it was somewhere off the, the mainland coast. Now, Falklands, it sounds a bit Scottish. Where does it actually come from, Saul? Well, I've done a little bit of digging into this, and apparently the first uh, recorded sighting of the islands was in 1690 by British sailors, and they named the channel between the two principal islands, that's the East and West Falklands, Falklands Sound. And the reason they did that is because at that time, in 1690, the treasurer of the Navy was Viscount Falkland. So that's how they got the name. Now, it's interesting, in the, in the next century, there's a claim from not just Britain, but also France and Spain to the islands, and each established uh, settlements at, at various different times. And so you can see that this disputed claim has a long history. Yeah, and it goes back and forth, uh, back and forth. Sometimes it's settled, sometimes it's deserted. And that's where you get this confusion over the name, because one of the early settlements was landed there by the great French explorer uh, Bougainville. And the people he was settling came from Saint-Malo in Brittany. They're known as uh, Malouine. So that became the Malouine Islands. And of course, that was corrupted then by Spanish into Las Malvinas the name to which they cling to very, very strongly to this day. I think we should say at this point, Patrick, that Argentina, of course, didn't uh, exist as a separate country as part of the Spanish Empire. But in 1820, when it gets its independence from Spain, this is the point at which the Argentinians now, uh, you know, relate their claim because... Uh, they argue, of course, that the islands are really bequeathed to them when they get their independence. The next crucial date we need to think about in terms of our Britain's claim to the islands is 1833, because it's at that point that physically, by sending ships to the islands, we take control and have been in possession, this unbroken uh, connection ever since that date. Yeah, you might wonder why anyone would uh, prize these islands, because when you actually 
look at them. The Scottish thing is, is coincidental, but it's a very apt comparison because they do look very much like a Hebridean island. The, they're, not, they're, kind of, they're not mountains on there, they're more hills. I mean, the biggest feature on, on the Falklands is only 2,300 feet high. That's Mount Osborne. The next biggest is Mount Kenter, which we'll be hearing a lot about later. But it's pretty poor territory. The living that you can make there is mainly from sheep. So sheep is really the foundation of the economy there. The people who settled it, I think at the time of the invasion, there were about 1,800 of them. They live a very kind of lonely existence. Uh, there are virtually no roads on the island. So you have these kind of settlements where uh, it's a bit like an Australian sheep station, I suppose, except in, in much colder, wetter conditions where a small group of shepherds essentially live in bunkhouses, hardly ever see anyone else. And that to do that, you have to be very kind of self-reliant, and that's reflected in, in the kind of character of the islanders. They're, they're understated people, but what they do feel, they feel very strongly. The thing they felt very, very strongly indeed was that they were British uh, and they didn't want to be Argentinians. Now, the next key bit of the story is really the 1960s when the Wilson Labour government tries to solve this conundrum about what to do in the long term with the Falcons. And let's remember, this is decolonization. So we're really looking to divest ourselves of various uh, 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 possessions around the world. And it's at this point that it gives the first indication to the Argentine government that we're going to talk about sovereignty. And that's really letting the genie out of the bottle because you've now got the British Foreign Office trying to tread this delicate balance between the Argentinians who have this expectation of sovereignty on the one hand and on the other hand the group you've already been talking about Patrick the islanders who are absolutely determined to remain British and it's going to be this tension that's going to lead to the road to war and of course the appetite on the Argentinian side to repossess the islands is getting stronger and stronger for internal political reasons around this time there's been a military junta in power for a couple of years now and they've been fighting what was termed the dirty war uh, literally uh, a war against their own people anyone suspected of left-wing sympathies communists etc were fair game and i think that an estimate of the casualties goes as high as thirty thousand people killed in this internal war so there's they're sitting on a bubbling cauldron of violent discontent they're meeting it with even more force. In, in, the military is very much involved in the counterinsurgency operation. And I think some people feel that they felt that their honour had been very severely tainted by the part they played in torture, killing, all sorts of ghastly death squad activities. And so for a couple of reasons, an invasion looks like a, a very good idea. The Falcons first, it unifies the people of Argentina, the one thing they agree on is that the Las Malvinas belong to them. And secondly, it's uh, an opportunity for the army to actually uh, sort of redeem themselves in a way uh, and fight a proper war. And so we arrive at the beginning of 1982 with this unwanted problem, at least for the British, looming larger and larger. And to try and untangle our way through this thicket, we're going to talk to someone who's right at the centre of events now. That is Lord Luce, then Richard Luce, who was the Foreign Office Minister responsible for the Falklands. And we're going to find out from him how this diplomatic dispute led to war. <laughs> Lord Luce, welcome. Can you paint a picture for us of where Britain stood in the world in the spring of 1982? 
Well, of course, 1982 was uh, three years after the election which brought Margaret Thatcher to office, and uh, I, my first portfolio was as Minister for Africa. Uh, and we had by then settled, pretty well settled Zimbabwe, uh, which was uh, an albatross round our necks, which we had to get rid of and had to negotiate a solution. Uh, and we were looking outwards. We were negotiating hard with the European Union about the single market, which Margaret Thatcher actually played a major contribution to. And Britain, I think, by then, after the 70s, which had been, as you remember, a very stormy period and a very difficult period uh, for Britain, uh, we were beginning to restore the reputation of the country and our position in the world. Tell us a bit about the, the, the Cold War. Was that, that was still very much a kind of dominant feature of the diplomatic landscape, wasn't it? Where did, where did we fit in there at that moment? We were a strong partner in NATO, uh, but, uh, I mean, definitely a very strong partner. Our economy was relatively strong at that time, but we were recovering from the disasters of the 1970s. Uh, and times were quite tough in one sense. Uh, the Chancellor Exchequer, Jeffrey Howe, had to take some fairly tough measures. And I think it was only really the Portland situation which turned the tide for the Prime Minister. Um, there's an analogy today, oddly enough, with Ukraine, not in the same position at all, but, it, but there's some similarities there. And the Falklands suddenly got people's minds onto a totally new and serious challenge. Can we go a little bit into the nitty gritty of the, of the Falklands negotiations, particularly your, your own role, Richard? So in February uh, 1982, you're a minister trying to resolve the issue with the Argentine negotiator Enrique Ross in the, at the UN in New York. Do you, can you give us a sense of the key issues that were at stake in those negotiations? Well, we have to put it into context that my predecessor was Nicholas Ridley, who had made a bold attempt to find a way forward and had proposed something called the lease-back scheme, which really meant ceding sovereignty altogether, but Britain continuing to administer the Falklands. Parliament dismissed that immediately. And therefore, we were faced with a situation when I became the Minister of State in the autumn of the previous year, uh, responsible for the Americas, including the Falklands. We were faced with a really serious uh, challenge uh, because the Argentine had been led to expect over 20 years since, in fact, 1966, just under 20 years, that Britain, British governments, were prepared to talk about sovereignty. And that was first made plain in 1966 by the then government. And ever since that period, up until 1982, putting it into context, the Argentine governments, one after the other, uh, thought that it would be possible to negotiate an agreement leading to the transfer of sovereignty. And all the events up to then, when they realised Britain was not prepared to just hand away the Falkland Islands, there was a sharp reaction from the islanders. Parliament wouldn't have anything to do with it. Then there was a dictatorship in the Argentine, and Galtieri, the new dictator, was much stronger and more robust and much fiercer than his predecessor, 
And clearly they were very restless. Now, they were restless to get action out of Britain. And our backs were to the wall because we weren't prepared to cede sovereignty just like that without the agreement of the islanders and parliament. And that is the context in which I came into that meeting. When we get to the meeting, I'm face to face with a very nice, decent person. Enriquez Ross was Deputy Foreign Minister, professional diplomat, serving under the Foreign Minister Costa Mendes, and of course under Galtieri. And my purpose was to try and negotiate a broad understanding of how we would embark upon a dialogue, but understanding the, the perimeters, how we, how, the, the, the atmosphere, the uh, parameters, so to speak, of how we would uh, be prepared to negotiate. Uh, now, the thing that I found about Enrique's Ross is that he went along with quite a lot of the things that I were was proposed to, uh, agreed to do, which was the establishment of this negotiating commission, which would enable both sides to talk. But each time we moved forward onto some proposal or other, he would ring up Galtieri or Costa Mendes. Uh, there's a parallel today with Putin and Lavrov. Exactly the same. You ring up the dictator because you're too frightened to take your own decision you know you might be overruled. And that is actually what happened. So basically, they, they were uh, not empowered to actually make any real decisions. And uh, every uh, step of the way, they were going back to Buenos Aires uh, to, to get instructions. At what stage did you get the impression that Galtieri wasn't really interested in a negotiation and had already pretty much made up his mind to take the, the road to war? Well, the warning signals came soon after those negotiations in New York because we agreed some kind of a communique, Enrique's Ross and myself, perfectly reasonable one, to set up the negotiating commission. He was immediately repudiated the moment he got back to Buenos Aires. And as a result of that, we realized things were going to get difficult. It was obvious that Galtieri was in trouble himself because he was having strikes in, uh, in the Argentine. His economy was not in a good condition. And that's a well-known factor for wanting to divert attention. Uh, so we were aware that there were dangers and that we had to keep uh, to try and find some kind of a way forward. So this was followed by a meeting that I had with Lord Carrington and one or two senior diplomats. I think it was on the 3rd of March in that year, to discuss the way forward. I think the, the, the advice we got was quite clear that we'd seen all this before. For example, in 1977, Jim Callaghan, the, the Labour Prime Minister, actually sent a submarine to the South Atlantic because they were worried there might be some incident or invasion. Uh, although, in fact, what transpired was the submarine never surfaced at all and it was only by surfacing that the, uh, the Argentinians would have realized there was a threat to them. Uh, there was a deterrent there. But put that on one side, uh, his intention was perfectly good. Uh, and we were told by the advisors that there was no evidence of anything serious emerging at, the present, at that time, uh, that uh, there was no need to take any action 
that there was no intelligence which said that we needed to do so. That was a that was a serious turning point. Where was that advice coming from? Is this from MI6? The, the, the senior diplomats. Uh, but they were getting their advice from the ambassador on the spot. And uh, I, I think it's right for me to say at this stage, my, my anxiety afterwards was this. In fact, I was slightly harsher than the Franks Commission that looked into it afterwards, that we hadn't had all the intelligence, both from the ambassador, the embassy, from the captain of HMS Endurance, who'd been through a lot, uh, and from other sources, uh, as to really what the thinking in the Argentine was, and above all, in the military leadership. It wasn't all pulled together. And I think it's partly psychological. They, they thought they'd seen all this before. This is nothing new. Uh, and they go on like this, and then it proceeds, and it comes back again. Because it had happened so often over the previous 15 years that there was a threat and then the threat never happened. So that, is a, that was a serious point. And thereafter, of course, soon after, I was rung up where I am now in this house uh, as Minister of State at the time on a Saturday afternoon um, and told that uh, the metal scrap company, uh, Christian Salverson, had sent some men onto South Georgia. Uh, but uh, there was some evidence one or two might be military people. Uh, so from that moment onwards, and for the next 13 days, I think, before the invasion, I certainly realised we were in deep trouble. So what you're referring to, of course, is the moment on the 19th of March when Argentine scrap metal dealers actually land on the island of South Georgia, which was 800 miles to the east of the main Falkland Islands, but a dependency of the islands, and raise the flag and shots are fired. And there's almost no doubt that because this was organised by the Argentine Navy, this is a deliberate act by Argentina to effectively claim possession of South Georgia. But the raising of the flag was very symbolic, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And as the days went by after that, we realised our backs were, were to the wall. Uh, action was taken. I always feel very sorry for the captain of HMS Endurance, but he was sent backwards and forwards. But that ship had only just, we'd only just persuaded the Ministry of Defence not to withdraw it altogether, which meant that all we had in the Falklands would have been 35 Marines. And that, of course, was an MOD decision, wasn't it, to save a bit of cash, uh, objected to, I seem to recall, by the Foreign Office, by Lord Carrington and yourself, presumably, the year earlier. Yeah, yes. Uh, well, of course, there was a defence review that John Knott was undertaking. Uh, and part of this involved a reduction in the size of the Navy. And this is not a criticism of John Knott. I'm just saying exactly what the situation was at that time. And endurance... HMS Endurance was a signal uh, that if you withdraw the last remaining sort of symbol, uh, then the message to the Argentine must be, uh, we're not really bothered, Britain. And that was part of the whole story, a misreading of each other. And my goodness, how often this happens in history and is happening today, that neither side understood each other and what their motives were, what their intentions were. So that was the, the, the background as it developed, with a 
a military leader who was desperate to do something to divert attention from his own internal troubles. The decision to send nuclear submarines, I think it was on the 29th of March. You're yeah. getting more and more intelligence that the, the, the Argentine naval force is building up. A, an invasion looks likely. So the decision is taken to send those submarines down there. Now, a day later, you make what sounds to the House of Commons like a very emollient speech. It's a, it seems like an olive branch. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the, your intention that day? Well, uh, I think uh, I can't remember precisely that particular day, but uh, whenever I was pressed to give an assurance that we were taking appropriate measures, that is to say, principally military measures, to act as a deterrent, um, I could not possibly have divulged to the House what we had in mind and what we were doing, because otherwise Galtieri would have worked out how he was going to respond to it. Uh, we were beginning to wake up. But a lot of cabinet ministers really couldn't believe any more than the Americans could believe. And that's a very important point in this whole story. The American intervention was very weak. Um, Intervention with the Argentine would try and get them. uh, A lot of the cabinet ministers couldn't believe that we were likely to have military action involving a small overseas territory. And it took time for that to get through uh, and for people to realise there was a problem. I think the Prime Minister got onto it quicker than others. Tell us about that. Um, she's an untried force, really. I mean, she's been in power for a couple of years, but uh, she's got plenty of, of, of problems with her own cabinet. She's certainly not held in any great esteem by the electorate, it seems. Uh, t- tell me about your first encounters with her in the crisis and how she reacted to it. Well, It was only really in that week uh, leading to the invasion that she got intensely involved. Uh, Lord Carrington, my outstanding boss as Foreign Secretary, was away in Israel, but keeping his tabs almost hour by hour on what was happening. And then he returned early uh, to join us in discussions. And... I will have to say, and this may well have happened with Churchill too in, in, at some stages in the war, that she was walling around because this was all new to her. Uh, I mean, how could she have thought a week previously that there would be a problem in the Falkland Islands which might lead to a war when she had all these other difficulties all over the world to deal with, let alone not just in Africa but in Europe and elsewhere. So she had to adjust. It was very difficult for her. But I was full of admiration, because if we get to the critical point where she called me over to a meeting in the House of Commons, I think it was on that Wednesday, the 31st. That's correct, yeah. I think it was that day. John Knott was there as Defence Secretary. I was there in place of Lord Carrington. Uh, And there were one or two other officials, not many. She was wallowing around, as I would if I was Prime Minister at that moment, trying to work out the pros and cons of what we should do, how we should respond. Because by then we'd assumed there was going to be an invasion. The evidence was becoming clearer and clearer. And it was only when the First Sea Lord came in, in his uniform, looking the appropriate part, Admiral Leach, that things began to clarify. Up to then, John Knott had said it wasn't, we hadn't got the capacity. Uh, to uh, occupy. Now, uh, I, you, you may want to ask John not his opinion of this, but that is what he 
said until Admiral Leach came in and the Prime Minister said to him, now, Admiral, this is the situation. What is your advice? If I ask you to retake the Falklands, assuming there's an invasion, can we do it? And there was only a short pause. And he said, if you ask me, Prime Minister, we'll do it. And that was the turning point. She then became stronger because she knew it was the right thing to do. If you allow countries to invade each other uh, without, uh, with no punishment whatsoever, then the price would be very heavy indeed all over the world. She knew that deep down in her heart. That was a turning point for her. And then, of course, she was right into it and involved day by day. What was the attitude of the army? As I understand it, they weren't quite as keen as uh, Sir Henry Leach on the whole prospect. Well, uh, first of all, the chief of the defence staff, Admiral Lewins, uh, uh, who was a wonderful person, but he was in New Zealand, unfortunately, at that time, and doing an official visit. And so really, it was the first sea lord he was leading. And I never really, uh, I dealt more with uh, some of the ministers in defence on one or two issues. But it was principally the Navy leading. And of course, we have to remember that uh, in Argentine, the Navy was the strongest factor. The Navy was powerful in, in Argentina, as, as you will remember. Uh, they also, at that time, they quite often did training exercises. So it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be very difficult for a group of ships uh, to load um, an Argentine army on board uh, and suddenly divert from their exercises. And that obviously is what they did. So the result of this meeting, of course, is that the fleet is put on initial alert. Um, that doesn't mean it's definitely going to go, but they've got to prepare for it to go. And just a couple of days later, the invasion itself happens. Yeah, this is um, overnight on the 2nd of April. Uh, the Argentinians launch Operation Rosario, which is basically the amphibious landing uh, on on the islands. Um, there is uh, around Port Stanley, there's a, a marine garrison, which when the Argentinians uh, arrive, they put up a, a fierce resistance. But of course, they're heavily outnumbered. There's only 86 of them. And eventually, after a couple of hours of, of, of intense firefight, uh, the governor, Sir Rex Hunt, uh, realizes the situation is hopeless and uh, announces the surrender. Uh, now, when this news gets back to Britain, of course, this, this is the point where you resign, you and your boss resign. Well, perhaps I could put this into context of what happened after the invasion. On that Friday morning, uh, I went to the chamber, uh, and I think it was uh, Humphrey Atkins, who was the Lord Privy Seal, who announced uh, that the invasion had taken place. I immediately decided that as the Minister of State for day-to-day -day responsibility as a matter of honour, with something as disastrous as that in terms of our foreign policy, uh, that I should go and uh, hand in my resignation to the Prime Minister. I went straight to see Lord Carrington, who was in his office. He was back from Israel. And I came in and he said, you're not going to. He'd, taken a, he'd guessed what I was going to try and do. He, uh, but I came and sat down and I said to him, look, Somebody's got to carry the can for this. And he quite rightly said to me, I'm the foreign secretary, not you. And the person who carries the can is me. And we're going to stay at our posts. 
and we're going to battle through this one. And over the weekend, I want you now to take charge of rallying the United Nations in support of Britain. And I felt I said to him, "Okay, but if you come to a moment when you feel you want to resign and it is right to resign, I will do it with you. So I spent the weekend doing what I could, but I sought the prime minister's help. Uh, We rallied country after country. I spoke to as many heads of government as I could. But when I got to the difficult ones, or the ones we really needed, like King Hussein, I rang up the Prime Minister on a Saturday or Sunday and said, Prime Minister, could you intervene? She did that, rallied uh, whatever person they were, and we got the vote on our side. But I always felt that it wasn't going to last and I did alert the Prime Minister that as a matter of honour I thought I should go. Uh, she sent messages by, my, by Parliamentary Private Secretary saying no stay at your post. But when I used the word honour to her she said I can't quarrel with that. So I waited because I felt that something would happen in the next day or two. Uh, the aircraft arrived at Bryce Norton with the governor and the Marines uh, on the Monday morning. And in the editorial of the Times, we were described, particularly me and Lord Carrington, as traitors virtually to our country. Uh, that led to Lord Carrington ringing me at Bryce Norton as the plane was landing and saying, Richard, I'm resigning. I said, well, you've got to hang on because I've got to come back and resign too. He said, you better be quick because I'm going at lunchtime. Uh, So I took the poor governor who got off the aircraft in a flight to North Holt and then threw all the red lights by car to see the prime minister. And he said to me on the way, "Um, do you always drive like this? And I said, only when I'm resigning. Uh, And then he realized, and I'm sure he understood the reason why. Uh, And that is what led to our joint resignation. And what mattered was the loss of Lord Carrington, never to come back into government. He was going to be Secretary General of NATO, which is good, but never to be back in government and to do the job he was so good at. Richard, terrible question, but a historian has to ask it. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, at what stage do you think the crucial errors were made that, that made the war almost inevitable? No, well, I certainly thought that even before going into New York um, and once Galtieri had come in, that it was going to be extremely difficult to find any solution because both points of view were totally ir- irreconcilable. On the one hand, you had Galtieri who felt that Argentine had, had sovereign rights over the Falklands. On the other hand, you had 2,000 Falkland Islanders who wanted to remain British. The British had been there with sovereign authority since 1832. And the British Parliament felt very strongly indeed. Uh, There's no doubt about that. So uh, I felt that we were in great danger after the talks in New York broke down. Uh, But the evidence wasn't that there was about to be a military action. The advice we had was that we might get increasing pressures on us and uh, troubles of one kind of another with the Argentine. But if if there was likely to be any military action, it wouldn't come till the 150th anniversary of our sovereignty, which was not till 1983. 
And so we went along with it. Now, hindsight is a very easy thing. I wouldn't, I know I couldn't and wouldn't have done anything other than what I did uh, with Lord Carrington at that time. But with hindsight, and had we known, of course, the obvious thing should have been done would be to have sent two submarines much, much earlier. Submarines had then surfaced in the South Atlantic, and more than one, uh, and then allowed that to sink in with the Argentine leadership. Uh, I think that would have made a difference. Wonderful stuff. Thank you so much, Richard. That's amazing uh, recall, uh, beautifully put, and your voice well, is coming Well, you helped me. <laughs> you helped me. Um, good luck with everything. Um, okay. I'm, I think it's, it's excellent you're doing this. People have to be reminded of these past things. Yeah. And there are, are some, you know, when we face the Ukraine today, some parallels, certainly not exact parallels, but some parallels come back. Yeah. You know, did we understand each other? Did Putin know that we were going to be robust in our reaction. I bet he didn't. He thought we'd be as weak as anything. So did Galtieri. Yeah. It's very interesting, isn't it? Great stuff. Thank you so much, yeah. Richard. Okay. Good, to, good to talk to you. And you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow, is all I can say, Patrick. I mean, that's one of the key players in the story. Richard Luce, uh, who was the minister with responsibility for the Falklands, South America, at that time, leading us through the diplomatic sequence of events that led to war. And what's so striking about it, apart from the goosebumps I'm feeling as someone who actually lived through those moments has just recounted it in such extraordinary detail, is how much a sense you get that there's almost nothing you could do to stop it. You know, he was getting not enough information to to allow him and the Ministry of Defence and Thatcher to take the sort of action that was needed to prevent that war. Yes, he was very honest about that, wasn't he? And it's, it's, it was, uh, I felt actually privileged to, to talk to him. There aren't many people around who were actually at the heart of the storm, at the eye of the storm, when all this was going on. And to have someone who's, who, who was such a key player, um, is, it's, it's really uh, quite a remarkable thing. Um, I think what came out of it for me uh, was that sort of lack of coordination. Um, I think to be put it into context, as he says, there's so much going on at the time that uh, you can't really expect everyone to keep their eye on the ball all the time. Um, and there is that other great point that he makes is that, you know, it's the old hands who are dealing with this crisis. It comes, it goes, it's on the boil, it goes off the boil again. And so in a way, if you're being fair, you can't really blame them for thinking, well, it's just another uh, another one of these squalls that will blow up and then and then subside again. So um, he wasn't afraid to to say what he thought, nor to apportion blame where it was. But I think his judgment was just in that respect. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the question we always ask ourselves as historians is, is there a moment along the way when things could have been different? Now, of course there are. We can look back with hindsight. And we know perfectly well, as he said at the end of that interview, if we'd sent the nuclear submarines sooner, might we have deterred the uh, the Argentinians a little bit like, you know, if we'd sent different signals to Putin today, might we have discouraged him from invading Ukraine? But the more, much more interesting question is, is there enough information for the politicians at that time to have done something differently? That That's much more relevant, really, than when we look back. And, and what you see as he works his way through that story is well-meaning, bright, capable, determined uh, politicians and diplomats doing the best to deal with a problem that they never re- realised was going to be as serious as it became. Yeah. Also fascinating for me was the way that 
one man can swing events. In this case, Sir Henry Leach marching into the uh, meeting in the House of Commons at his full naval rig. That must have been quite a sight. And clearly, everyone who was there remembers it with enormous clarity. And it had the, he obviously put it on to have this effect. And by golly, it did have that effect. Uh, so here you've got one forceful character more or less taking the country to war. Of course, it's the Prime Minister's decision, but here's a Prime Minister who is actually quite impressed by men in uniform. She's got a great respect for, for military men. Uh, and with a forceful personality and forceful argument, clinched again, very importantly, by this sort of appeal to national honour. We have to do this. It's, it's, it's a question of right or wrong. We've got, we can do it, and what is more, we have to do it. I think that's a really crucial moment in the I think what's... I think, Patrick, what's so chilling about that moment is that, you know, the way he recounted it, even as late as the 31st of March, when it was absolutely clear from intelligence that the Argentinians were gathering a force that was almost certainly going to invade the Falklands, there was still hesitancy, particularly on the part of Knott and the Ministry of Defence, as to whether we could do anything about it, urging caution. Uh, and yet it took the, the, the courage, frankly, the moral courage of the, of the naval chief, Leach, to actually force events. It also reminds me, of course, Patrick, this, this great question in history is, can individuals make a difference? And this clearly is the case of one person making a big difference. Absolutely. And if it had been something that... Uh that Richard didn't say uh, because he said he, he wasn't actually uh, qualified to say, but I've heard from other sources, is that if it had been, if it had been the head of the army, Dwin Bramall, walking into that meeting, uh, he would have been telling a very different story. And his story would be, why do we need the Falklands? They've got no strategic value. They are a drain on our limited resources. Let the Argentinians have them. If we have to go to war over this, we won't actually uh, be able to win it. That was absolutely his view. And uh, the army was um, by no means as enthusiastic about the enterprise as the Navy was. Uh, but we'll hear more about that in episodes to come. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've now got to the point in which the, uh, the task force has been authorised. It's about to sail. That's all we've got time for. Do join us next week for episode two of our Falklands special, The Task Force Sails. Goodbye. Goodbye.